If something is too good to be true, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? That weight loss program, that great price on the thing you want that turned out to be a great price because it was a piece of junk, that warranty that seemed so worth it until it expired the day before you needed it. But sometimes we miss out on things that are important, things that are good and true and powerful because we're not paying attention because we don't take it seriously, because we don't really believe, because maybe we've got it already figured out, and that new idea, no matter how good it is, how, no matter how important, no matter how true, it doesn't stand a chance. Something that Jesus said when he was teaching the crowd was, whoever has ears, let them hear. And when you think about it, that, that's kind of a strange thing to say. After all, I'm pretty sure everyone who was listening to him had ears. So what, what was he getting at? What did he mean? He meant that sometimes we can hear, but not really hear. Sometimes things go in one ear and out the other. We don't always pay attention like we should. Or sometimes our preconceptions, the things that we're so sure of, things that we've always been taught, things that we've always believed, maybe without even realizing it, they're so strong and entrenched that we can't hear something new. And so when we hear that new thing, we miss it. We miss out. We don't hear. Today, we're going to look at a passage from Paul in the book of Ephesians. And it's full of words that I guarantee you, you've heard before. Words like love, power, faith, and glory, heaven and earth, Father, Christ, the Spirit, the church. Words that are all over the Bible words that you've heard in sermons and prayers so many times, you couldn't possibly count them. And here we go again. It's, but it's the kind of passage that if you have ears to hear, it can change your life. But we have to listen like it's the first time. Like these are words that we've never heard before. And we also have to listen like what Paul is saying is actually true and not just stuff that sounds nice in church. So let's listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 14. Ephesians 3, 14. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That is big talk. Those are some big words. Talk about getting your hopes up 
Talk about some high expectations. I looked up uh, expectations on the internet, and this is what I came up with. The best way to avoid disappointment is not to expect anything from anyone. Or this, expect nothing, and you don't need the courage to hope, nor the strength to withstand disappointment when nothing comes. As if courage to hope is a bad thing. As if the strength to withstand disappointment isn't worth it. As if expecting nothing hoping for nothing, being content with nothing, is a virtue. Years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. What a great title. For so many of us, it's true. We don't expect much from God. We don't think our lives can really change, that God can really transform us, that anything can really be different. And so we hear things like this passage today in Ephesians, and we don't have ears to hear. So I want to go through this passage today so that we can hear it, so that we can see for the first time perhaps, or maybe perhaps in a new way, what God has for us and what we can expect of him. Let me suggest that throwing away our expectations isn't the answer, that if we just hunker down and protect ourselves so that we'll never be disappointed, so that we'll never get hurt, well then, we'll lose. God has power for us, power to change our lives. He has love for us, love that is deeper and richer and more gracious than we can ever fully grasp, love that never ends, never runs out. And God has his spirit for us, his spirit to fill us, his very self to fill us. And all of this can really, truly be ours. But if we expect little or if we expect nothing, well, then we'll get what we expect. So let's take a closer look at what Paul says in this passage. And I want to focus on these three big things that jump out. Power and love and the fullness of God. Three times, Paul mentions power in this passage. Three times. Two times, he prays, he asks God to give power to those who believe. He prays that God will strengthen us with power, that we will have power. And then he gives praise to God whose power is at work within us. Now, there are all kinds of power, right? I mean, there's power that comes out of a battery. There's political power, which we think about a lot these days. Persuasive power. There's power of all kinds. But what kind of power are we talking about here? And what's the power for? If we were to go back to the first chapter of Ephesians, we'd see another prayer that Paul has. And he says, he mentions God's incomparably great power for us who believe. His incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he defines that power. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The power he has for us is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Seriously. That's a lot of power. Did you hear that? The power that God has for us is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the, the power that exalted him to the right hand of the Father. That is the kind of power that God has for us, for you and for me. Now, I confess, I don't think that way. I don't often think about how God raised Jesus from the dead 
or about what kind of power that implies. What about you? Doesn't it seem like all too often we talk about the resurrection as just a concept, an idea, something to believe or not believe, something to argue about. Did it really happen? Is it a myth? Was it a lie? Did the apostles make it up? But then why would they die for it if they knew it was a lie? Who would do such a thing? So there's a place for apologetics, a place for discussing the evidence and the reasons to believe in things like the resurrection. But I'm afraid that too often the story ends there with just the fact of the resurrection. I believe that it happened. But the fact is just the beginning. If you believe the resurrection really happened, that God through his mighty strength raised Jesus, then what? And if this mighty strength is actually at work in us who believe, then what? Over the last four or five months, I've been using a devotional prayer book by a guy named John Bailey, and it's called A Diary of Private Prayer. It's got these great prayers from morning and evening, 31 days of them. But lately, even as I make my way through it each day, I keep coming back to one line from one prayer on day 20. And it goes like this. God, you have given me little power to mold things to my own desire. Therefore, use your own omnipotence to bring your desires to pass within me. The power that God has for us isn't the power to make the world conform to the way we think it should be. Heaven forbid. We're not wise enough for such power. The power that he has for us isn't the power of a genie that grants wishes. And besides, our wishes and our desires are often too small and too petty and too selfish. And so I love that prayer. You have given me little power to mold things to my own desires. Therefore, Use your omnipotence to bring your desires to pass within me. This prayer reminds me that I am not God. I don't always get to have it my way. Maybe at Burger King, but not everywhere else. And if I'm honest, plenty of my desires aren't even good desires. In in the very next chapter of Ephesians, Paul talks about these deceitful desires, he calls them, that are ever corrupting us, our old self, the self that is at war with the Spirit. All the more reason to pray for God to bring about his desires in us by his omnipotence, his power. Yes, Lord, may this be so. May you bring your desires to pass within us. Do this by your power by your power at work in us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Amen. So this power of God that he has for us is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And what's the power for? He tells us. He prays that we may be strengthened with power. Why? So that God may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, is that perhaps just a little bit anticlimactic, talking about Christ in your hearts, does that just sound like some nice religious talk, stuff we've heard a thousand times before? Maybe so. We're going to come back to that. Let's read on to what Paul says. He mentions power again, and he has another part to this prayer for us. He says, and I pray that you, 
being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all God's holy people, the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now again, does this kind of seem like no big deal? He's, he's praying for all this resurrection power for us just so that we can know God's love? It's not a big deal, it seems. Well, let's have ears to hear. Talk about God's love, is, it's almost a cliche. For God so loved the world that blah, 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 blah. We've heard it all a thousand times before. So many times that we don't think anything of it. God's love is amazing. It's profound. It's huge. It's wide and long and deep and high. And what adjectives can we come up with that can convey what God's love is like? What can we possibly say that can communicate how God loves us? How about this? How about God's love is ridiculous? It doesn't make sense. It's out of line. I mean, who loves their enemies? Who loves someone who wishes them to be dead? And yet, while we were yet sinners, while we were still opposed to God, while we were God's enemies, what happens? Christ goes and dies for us. God's love is sacrificial. It gives everything. For whom? For people who don't even love God in return. The love of Christ is the love for people who drive nails into him and hang him on a cross. The love of Christ forgives people who aren't even interested in his love. He says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says that from the cross. This is the love that Paul is trying to describe, a love that surpasses knowledge. How can we know a love that surpasses knowledge? How can we know something that's beyond knowledge? Isn't that asking the impossible? How can we know it? Well, Maybe, it's, maybe it starts like this. Maybe it's, it means accepting this truth, that God loves you more than you can know, that God loves you when you hate yourself, that God loves you when you sin. God loves you in the midst of your sinning. God loves you while you are cussing out that other driver. God loves you when you betray a trust. God loves you when you stab someone in the back. God loves you while you were undermining your boss, cheating on that test, lying to your spouse, sleeping with that person you shouldn't be sleeping with. Even in the midst of your worst, of the worst moment, God loves you. This kind of love makes no rational sense. It's love beyond knowledge. It's unexpected, and it can be hard to accept. Years ago, when I was pastoring in Montana, a woman started coming to our church, and every Sunday, she sat in like the second row, it would be like right there, and every Sunday, she would listen to the sermons intently, eyes up, paying attention, and I think we talked about God's love a fair amount. I mean, we were a church, that's what you do, but I remember after about three years or so, she said, wow. God really loves me. She finally got it. It finally sunk in. Everything in our world says you're not lovely and you're not worth loving. Everything in our world says you don't measure up. And so, of course, it's hard to believe 
that God really and truly does love us. We can hear it again and again, but until we have ears to hear, we miss it. We don't believe it. So hear it now. God loves you. God made you. Christ died for you because he loves you. Recently, a friend of mine posted on Facebook one of the most beautiful things I've ever read about unexpected love. And what she wrote isn't all spiritual or anything. It's, it's very ordinary. But you remember that time that Jesus washed the disciples' feet and they couldn't believe it? it it's kind of like that. My friend's name is Sonia, and I've known her since elementary school. We went, we went to school together all the way through high school. And this is what she wrote. She was happy to have me share it with you today. She says, It's really easy to fall into hating our bodies, especially this time of year. This was just in January, right, right when everyone's making their resolutions to you know, lose weight and exercise and stuff. She says, I'm extremely self-critical, but that has not proven to be very helpful to me. Surprise, surprise. When I get stuck in a self-hating loop, I make myself go back 25 years to one of the most loving things I've ever experienced. One day, as I said something hateful about my big thighs, still guilty of this, my friend Johnny dropped to the floor and proceeded to hug my right thigh, saying, I love this thigh. Then he moved and hugged my left thigh, repeated the love to it. Then he hugged my torso, then my right arm, then the left, until he stood up and hugged me completely while shouting to all around, I love you. It was a hokey pokey of love. It was magnificent. A 19-year-old man with so much love for everyone. I have no idea where he is today. I hope the world returned that love. We can't hate our bodies and hope for them to serve us well. A person doesn't take care of something they don't like. We care for the things we love. Give your thighs a little love today. Give your belly a little love today. Give your arms a big thank you for getting you this far. They will return the love. That is the best thing I've seen on Facebook in a very, very long time. I think that in that story, we see a glimpse of God's love for us with a ridiculous love, an unexpected love. He loves us more than we love ourselves and even when we're disappointed in ourselves. Now, Paul isn't done. The power that God has for us, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that makes it possible for us to know this love of God that surpasses knowledge, Paul isn't finished. He prays that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, I confess, words fail me here. Everything in this passage stretches our comprehension to the breaking point. The power of God in us, that's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's, it's mind-bending. The love of God, a love that loves us at our absolute worst, it's hard to accept, hard to believe. And now this, the idea that we can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, what is that supposed to mean? What is that supposed to look like? How can we make sense of that? I think maybe we can start by looking at what it's not. Not being filled with the fullness of God means expecting little. That's back where we started. Not much hope. Not much love. Not much power. 
no expectations that God can or will be at work in your life. Not being filled with the fullness of God's means relying solely on yourself. It means self-sufficiency. It means it's all up to you. Maybe God is out there somewhere, but he's way out in heaven, out in space, watching from a distance, probably waiting for you to screw up. Not being filled with God, with the fullness of God, means being filled with yourself. So we can be full of self, or we can be full of the Spirit. And in the next chapter, chapter 4, Paul paints a picture of what being full of self looks like. And you'll recognize this. It's our natural state. He says, so I tell you this. This is uh, Ephesians 4, verse 17. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. So what does it mean to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? Well, it's the opposite of that. The life apart from God means futility, despair, meaninglessness. The life apart from God means darkness. The life apart from God means insensitivity to God. It means indulging in impurity. It means greed, continually wanting more, lusting for more. But life in the Spirit, life that is filled to the measure of the fullness of God, is totally different. It means having hope and purpose. It means being sensitive to God. It means saying no to impurity and the things that would drag us away from God. It means greed loses its power. Remember that we, we looked at what the power of God in our lives was for and that it was that uh, Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And I get that that, that can sound kind of cliche, but he's saying the same thing here, just more forcefully. His hope and his prayer is that Christ will not only dwell in your heart, but that Christ will fill you with the fullness of God, filled to the brim, filled to overflowing. Listen, Christ isn't content to dwell in our hearts like some downstairs tenant you never see who you hope doesn't make any noise and just pays the rent on time. The idea is Christ in us, that we will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that, that God himself will, will permeate us every aspect of our lives, from head to toe, every square inch, every thought, every desire, every word on our lips, everything we do, that we become like Christ in every way. That when people see us, they see Christ. Does that sound like too much? Does it sound too good to be true? Maybe you think about things you've said or done, and you think, right, no one would think, wow, Christ in that person. No one would say, wow, she's filled to the measure of the fullness of God. He walks and talks and looks like Christ. I know. I get it. We're sinners. In Romans, Paul talks about how he wants to do the right thing, but he does the wrong thing anyway. Maybe that rings more true. So what is it? Can we believe, Paul, here, that we can be filled with the fullness of God? 
This is the crux of the matter. Will we take God at his word? Will we receive this word as actually true? A word that is for us. A word that can be realized in us. Paul ends this passage, this prayer, by giving praise to God. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory. He doesn't just say, to God be the glory. He says, no, no. He says, to the one who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. To the one who has power at work in us. God can do more than you can imagine, more than you can ask. And he can do more than you can imagine in you. I want to end with a story. And, and it's a very personal story. And it's a bit hard to share, really. But I don't want you to think that this is all just theory, that this is all just nice-sounding words that doesn't make a real difference in life. God's power can truly transform us. God's love can permeate us. God himself comes to dwell in us and fill us. Recently, I was down in the depths of being consumed by resentment. Resentment, you probably know, is an awful, terrible thing. If peace and joy are like the sun on your face and the wind at your back, then resentment is like an itching open sore and frostbite on your cheeks. When you look at all the ways the Bible describes a person who's following Jesus and full of the Spirit, you know, full of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, humility, self-control, you'll notice that resentment isn't anywhere on the list. Resentment isn't part of the deal because resentment poisons peace. It deflates joy. It absolutely kills love. Resentment is toxic, spreading through a person like bile, and resentment had a hold of me, and I knew it. Now, the details don't really matter. Who was right, who was wrong, there was plenty of right and wrong to go around. But the resentment in my heart was eating away at me. And then, something changed. I encountered, in a new way, a fresh way, the power of God at work in me. And it wasn't some kind of impersonal power. It was the power of Jesus. It was an encounter with Jesus. You could say my ears were opened. My willingness to believe was renewed. And believe it or not, it happened in a dream. Now, this is, this is where it gets really personal and a little strange and a little hard to explain. I encountered Jesus in my dream. I can't tell you what he looked like. I can't tell you where we were. It wasn't like that. We were just talking, and we were talking about my resentment, and I said, can you take it from me? Can you take my resentment away? Because by now, I knew I needed to be free from it, regardless of who was right, who was wrong. I needed to be free from the resentment that was eating me alive, and Jesus said to me, yes, I can take it away. I can take your resentment away. He made it clear that he had died for it. 
It was covered. Nothing more needed to be done. He could take it from me. That dream came in the early morning hours of a Saturday, after a Friday night when all the resentment had come to a head. I woke in the morning after this brief dream, this brief encounter with Jesus, and my resentment was gone. It was gone. It was just gone. Now, believe me when I tell you that I couldn't make this up, and I couldn't just make it go away. I am not like that. I hold on to things. I have a hard time getting over things. It takes me a long time to move through a tough situation. Time heals all wounds, right? Well, it takes me a long time. And yet Jesus came and took my resentment away. He took it away. He has that kind of power. One day, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by across the way, and he said to his followers, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The same Lamb of God who took my resentment away, who took my sin away as far as the east is from the west. It really happened. These things you read in the Bible, they're really, really true. And these words of Paul today are true, and they're real, and they're for you. May you have ears to hear and a heart that is open to receive. The kind of power that can change your life is available to you. I obviously have no idea what is going on in your life, what you would wish would change, what you wish you could be free from. But I know that God works, and he's at work in you, and he works differently in every situation. Often he works slowly. Occasionally he does things in an instant. But whether he works quickly or slowly, you can expect him to work. You can expect him to be at work in your heart, in your life. Because regardless of how God chooses to work, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in those who believe. And it is available to you. Power to know the deep, deep love of Jesus, regardless of where you've been, what you've done, what is going on in your life right now. The deep, deep love of Jesus. To know and experience a love for you that is unending and unchanging. And all this so that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. May it be so. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray by your spirit you would open our ears to hear it, even now. Even as we've been looking at it and pulling it apart, I pray that you would reach down inside us so that we could know the love that you have for us, how high it is and how deep it is and how long it is and how wide it is. And Spirit, I pray that you would fill us, fill each one of us individually, as a church, as your people. Fill us to the brim, to overflowing with yourself. Change us, transform us, make us more like you, Jesus, in every way and day by day. May we expect this of you. May we have this hope. May we have this trust. And may we be able to believe that you will do it. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.